How's that? Perfect. Thank you. So it was because of apathy that they failed to enter into his rest. How's that? All right. It's being recorded, so... (laughs) So faith, you see, is the requirement by which we enter his rest. Now, his rest is a particularly significant thing. You know, we, we, we assume that we know the meanings of words as used in the scriptures simply because we're familiar with them in our common vernacular. Great harm is done to truth by excessive familiarity that is erroneous. So I want to talk to you now about entering God's rest. Because it's the same as entering God's sovereignty. When you are king, when you are sovereign, it is because you have been able to reduce the opposition to your rule to that which does not threaten you. To be a sovereign. That's why nations uh, go through such extents to establish their territorial domains and insist by treaty among nations that their domain is subject to them. They're wanting to be sure that nothing external to their domain has the ability to disturb their rule because it is impossible for a sovereign to engage the prime directive of sovereignty if an enemy is constantly threatening you from, from outside. The primary function of sovereignty, or as we say in the United States, of sovereignty, the primary function of it, the primary manifestation of it, is the well-being of those who are subject to your rule. This is the fundamental principle of rule. The absolute uh, uh, imperative of any form of rule is the well-being of those who are subject to your rule. Whether it's a husband ruling over a family, a wife and, and children, or a king ruling over a nation. I had to learn this matter of ruling as a young man and a young husband because I would be in the dead of sleep and not hearing anything when I would suddenly be awakened with a sharp jab to my ribs from my wife was fully awakened with the question, did you hear that? Had I heard that, I would have been awake. I think a time or two my response was, no, you heard it, you go and check. (laughs) But early in my life, I was disabused of that version of sovereignty. 
and I learned to swing my sleepy legs over the side of the bed, stumble down the hallway, where is not threat to man or demon, and go and check. And typically it was a water heater or something like that. By the time I got back to bed, she was sound asleep. (laughs) Because her sovereign had gotten up to ensure the well-being of the one under her rule, under his rule. Sovereignty requires a basis of authority and rule that guarantees that the citizens of that domain are unthreatened by foreign powers or authorities. That's why and that's how we are able to enter into God's rest. Rest is not the cessation of activity. Rest is not the absence of work. Rest is working from a position of legitimately delegated authority. Because you are free to function according to the terms and conditions of your authority by, because the one whose authority was delegated to you guarantees the outcome so long as you function within the metron of that authority. Amen? So I want to talk to you about uh, some words. I want to define some words that relate to authority. And then I want to circle back and talk about the applications, some of the specific applications of this concept of authority. Because when authority from God touches us, it does so in the form of grace. You see? All these terms, magnificent terms, but they're plucked up out of their context and wielded around like by whirling dervishes to any means or to any ends, by any means and to any ends, suitable to the thing they were attempting to convey. But these things are terms of art. They're to be understood within the context of whose, of whose authority, whose personhood, whose sovereignty is using these terms. So first let me talk to you about authority, which is the basis of our rest. And then I'll talk to you about the manifestations of various forms of this authority in terms of the concept of grace. And for our purposes, we'll talk about five manifestations of the concept of divine authority in which we might stand. In which we might stand. I'll quickly tell you that there are in these five and this, this is just to list things because I'll come back and we'll 
we'll work through them. Of course, grace, uh, the number in scripture for grace is the number five. So there are five manifestations of the authority of Christ. Understand, I'm just giving you a taste of it because I'll circle back to it, to, to, to deconstruct it in a more precise fashion. But, but uh, I'm giving you that, but I'll, I'll first go and talk about the authority which is manifested as grace. You see? The, the, the authority is not simply um, constructs of rule. The character of this authority comes to us in the form of reliable, functional conclusions upon which you may depend. This is how we unpack pistis. The, the twin principles of pistis being God exists as our Father, and when we seek Him, we'll discover Him in the specific terms of grace. And these terms of grace for our purposes are, number one, the grace of salvation, which I want to define not as going to heaven when you die, but rescue from one kingdom and placed into another. So I want to unpack the concept of citizenship, the polis that I spoke of, Uh, earlier on, because that gives you both privileges and obligations relative to the kingdom of God. Because the mandate of your existence is determined by your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, there is the grace of reconciliation. Because there was a prior intent for you known in the mind of God before you were in your mother's womb. You are not here as a biological accident. You are here to fulfill an eternal destiny. That is why your life is upgraded from bios, one form of life, bios, in the Greek, beyond suke, the life of the soul, to zoe, eternal life. Life fed from the very existence of God. This is not heavenly life. This is life beyond heaven and earth. This is life from the person of God. And citizenship in the kingdom of heaven depends upon, functional citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, depends upon accessing the life of God, Zoe. But again, I'm just, this is a laundry list here, but I want to sort of give you something of the architecture of where we want to go with this. So there's the grace of, of reconciliation, uh, the grace of reconciliation, which is to be set back into the original plan of God for you. Before you were in your mother's womb, he knew you because he intended you. And he intended you with specificity. 
that you might be a part of that which is the image and likeness. The manifestation of the perfection of which was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prosecution of the intent of it is in the corpus Christi. In the living body, the continuing person of Christ. He was Jesus before he died. Jesus Christ, he became Christ Jesus after he died because the death allowed for the metamorphosis and the change from the natural to the spiritual. Yeah? So, so there was a purpose in God for you before you were born. And you've come to be joined again to that purpose. You're born again to access that purpose as a living, functioning member of the body of Christ who carries the image and likeness of God in the earth because that's the means by which the invisible becomes visible. And we'll talk more about why it's important for the invisible God to become visible. But that's not, not, not just now. Then there's the grace of conformation. So to summarize what I've said so far, the five manifestations of grace, the grace of salvation, which is transfer of citizenship, the grace of reconciliation, to renew, to reconnect to the eternal purposes of God as they govern you, the grace of confirmation, where God reveals who you are to you and shows you through the process of suffering and trials how that unpacks to produce reconciliation to that divine purpose. Reconciliation in that sense is an accounting term. It presumes a prior intent to which you are now being reconciled. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You will be as he foreknew you in actuality. That's his intent. He's not making it up as he goes along, you know. And then there's the grace of maturation, where you grow up into the fullness of Christ. The grace of maturation, as many as receive him, to them he gives power to become. That we, the ehuios theo, the mature sons of God, the huios, not the napios, unto us a child is born. When a child is born, he's a son. But he's not the son who is given. That's the mature son. He presents himself in the son whom he loves because that son has learned obedience by the things he suffered. That son has grown in favor with God and man. That son is a reliable image and likeness of his father. So he gives us the grace to mature. He, in, he is endowed with power that we'll talk about in a moment that enables you to become that result. It's not up to you, not of works, lest any man should boast, because we are 
being formed in Christ as the workmanship of God. He is the painter with the canvas on which he paints. We are formed in the workshop of Christ to be the handiwork of God. Not of works of our own hands, lest we should boast that we made ourselves so. But that's another story. And, 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 and by the way, it is again to revisit the doctrine of works. Listen, we'll take no prisoners. Before, before we go on from this place, we'll have accuracy of understanding. We'll recover, we'll uncover the ancient foundations. This is apostolic doctrine. This is the uncovering of the, of those ancient foundations that will tear down the high places, that will destroy the idols that vaunted themselves in the place of the Most High so that the image and likeness of God may appear again in the earth. You know, the reason God said, do not make a graven image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God and so on. God was not telling us not to make sculptural pieces or to have them in our houses or enjoy them. He was saying, I don't want you to make something that you're going to worship as if that thing is me. Because I have already made my own image and likeness. And if you see my image and likeness, you'll see me. He's protecting his brand. <laughs> And guess who is his brand? Christ. And you in Christ. Oh, the foolishness that we've engaged in. But when we were children, we acted as, we understood as children. We acted as children. And we thought as, as, in a childish way. But no longer should we be immature. Now, here I'm not wanting to add weight upon weight upon weight on you. What I want to do is blow away the smoke so that you may see yourself again reflected in the mirror of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you do, when you behold him as he is, you will be changed to be like him. For you shall see him as he is and you'll see yourselves in him. And you will be made into that image and likeness consistent with the standard of revelation in the day that you are living in. So I don't have a laundry list of things you must do. I've come to announce your freedom. I've come to bring peace. I've come to break down these walls that have been built back up that he shattered at the cross. And finally, there is the grace of exact representation. That's the end of the, of the matter. 
It's the purpose for which grace exists. Exact representation. The Son is the likeness of the Father in both character and nature. And we'll talk about a couple of terms like um, character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-U-R, character. And we'll talk about its opposite, which is the term dokemos, which is reprobate. And I'm not going there just yet, but we'll get there. All right? So, the authority that establishes our rest, that manifests itself in terms of these five graces, is a sufficient authority. It is a sufficient authority to guarantee the rest of the citizens of the domain. That's why we can rest. The, I want to start with the term dunamis. Now there are two words that run together and we often use them interchangeably, but they're actually distinct terms. The terms are power and authority. Power and authority. Dunamis is where we get the English term dynamite. And it speaks of not explosive power, but power at rest. This is like the dynamite in the warehouse. It's potential. Um, it's latent, it's at rest. Now, you already touched it in Hebrews chapter 11, when it says, by faith we believed the worlds were framed out of that which was invisible. And he's offering that to us as proof that God exists in power. Now, there is a term that speaks of, or that is translated, uh, everlasting. It's also translated eternal. And it references endless, ageless, timeless. But it's also a reference to power. It's the word eon, A-I-O-N, eon. There are two realms, of course. There are two created realms. There's a realm of heaven that was created, or shall I say, the heavens. Because there's not one, there's not a single reference to heaven. There are the heavens. And there is the earth, two realms, the heavens and the earth. Both are created. One of the mistakes we have made is we thought that heaven was eternal. 
But it says plainly in the opening verses of Scripture, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. So you may, you may confidently say that the heavens were created. Anything that is created is not eternal. Our problem is one of unbelief. Apatheo. <laughs> because we've read this forever. But we didn't, we're reading with glasses on. The glasses of tradition that filter the word. And that's why we stumble in darkness. The heavens are not eternal. They were created. And everything that is created is destined to pass away. It was not, and then it came into being, and it will not be. So we look for new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) But you see, for the longest while, we have fixed our hope on going to heaven. Instead of fixing our hope in the ever-living God. Because wherever he is, there we shall be also. That was the promise. The Lord Jesus Christ promised us that. For where I am, there ye may be also. And it is abundant where he is. And we don't have to be in heaven. For the abundance of God's goodness To be fully available to us. Heaven and earth may in fact pass away. But the word of the Lord. The word who became flesh. And dwelt among us. Whose glory we beheld as the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Is eternal. Is eternal. There are three forms of life. The lowest form of life is called bios. B-I-O-S. You see it sometimes if you ever get into the workings of your computer. One one of those words that will pop up is the word bios. B-I-O-S. We pronounce it bios, but in the Greek it's bios. If you add the term logos to it, you get bios logos or biology and you it's a study of the human being internally and the human being externally so the the construction of the internal being and its interrelationship to its environment and that's biology you can do fine just with biology Except that there's more to your being than your biology. Your biology requires actually no faith. Because there you are. 
But why are you there? That's the question that at least requires an access into another form of life called suke. P-S-E-U-C-H-E. Suke. It's the word from which we get the term psychology. Which is about how the mind that is housed in the body works. So you take in impulses through your five senses and you have experiences through your five senses and you interpret your experiences through your five senses by the suke, by the soul. Now, you actually are more than bios and suke. You're something else. That other form of life, and these are three forms of life, the three forms of life, is the word zoe. Z-O-E with two dots over the, over the E. Zoe. And it refers to a life that transcends creation. It neither comes from heaven, nor comes from your mother's womb. Comes from God. That life is eternal. But it's not automatically activated in you. It remains dormant until an impulse that comes from outside of time and space jolts it into being. And you're alive. That impulse is actually what connects. It's when the life of Zoe is plugged in to the eternal. And that life is the spirit is brought to you by the spirit of God. And it activates that entire suite of existence that until then has been dormant. And suddenly, your spirit is alive with eternal life, with zoe. There's nothing in creation that can actually subdue this life. The dunamis of God, the power of God, the raw power of God not only sustains all of creation, but it empowers you to engage the very life that is in God. So that the impulses you take in through your five senses here on this earth, through your bios, is not interpreted by your soul, by your suke. It is understood and interpreted by your zoe. Then you have the point of view of God upon your human circumstances. If you function out of zoe, you will never Think of yourself as a victim. 
Because nothing is capable of intimidating you if you function out of the mindset of Zoe. My poor wife gets to hear the early versions of these things <laughs> after, after in my early morning studies. Usually she gets up very early and when I'm up early studying, I will say to her, let me show you something. And she will say, wait, I need to get my coffee. (laughs) Respond to a text, and then she says, now tell me what you had to say. By then, I'm so put out. (laughs) I've been having the most wonderful time uh, in my life right now. Uh, it's, uh, I'm so at rest. And I have such, such joy with and in my wife. We love to sit in the backyard. Peter and Charlotte were there uh, in the evenings. And, and sometimes she will say, you're going on too long. Why don't you wait until we sit down this evening and tell me more about this? <laughs> I just had a flashback about that <laughs> as I was telling you. <laughs> anyway, she is the most delightful woman, I tell you. She will often tell me, she will say, Sam Solon, I'm the best thing for you. <laughs> I found out she's entirely unintimidated by me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, just enough of that. You know, when she listens to this, she'll walk uh, in our neighborhood. We, we, we live in a gated community, and she will sometimes walk in that community, and she'll listen to these messages. So I know when she listens to this one, She'll just smile. Anyway, I'm trying to to describe to you something of the authority of God, the power of God, that settles you. The rest. What are you to rest in? And I'm telling you that when His Spirit connects to your spirit, And the life of Zoe, the life of God, eternal life, comes into you via that means. There's nothing in creation that has the power to overturn your being. Now, the word eon or ion, A-I-O-N, refers to three progressive things. One is when an eternal thing, when a thing out of the life of God, when a thing out of the intentions of God. Before there was creation, there was God. In the beginning, God. Time did not come, time did not come before God. Time came out of God. He controls the epochs. They serve Him. Space God did not occupy space. Space was emitted from God. One of the reasons why God is 
well, it's not possible to see God, is he fills everything in every way. He's too big to be seen. I may have given an analogy that you've heard of before. A fish in the ocean has no point of reference from which to observe the ocean. And yet it lives in it, it moves in it, it has its very being in it. But it can never see the ocean. Does it mean that the ocean doesn't exist? No, if it did, if the ocean didn't exist, neither would the fish. If God did not exist, neither would you. So a being that is so vast, a being that is so vast cannot be, cannot be understood by reference to a physical form. He has to be referenced by his characteristics. And the, the salient, the dominant characteristic of God and the one that motivated him to become visible thereby creating us, therefore and therewith and therefore creating us is the characteristic of love. Now we'll talk more about that. We'll unpack that with specificity. But I simply want to say that in the description of the power of God, we are not merely speaking about creation. Creation is the result of God activating power. But God at rest, God at rest is all-powerful. So the distinctions here are the distinctions between power and authority. Power is the thing at rest. Authority is the legitimacy of the exercise of authority. Okay? And the word for that in the Greek for exercise is the word exousia. E-X-O-U-S-I-A. Exousia. So power, the ability to do but at rest, is dynamis. Dynamite. Explosive. Capable. But it's dynamite in the warehouse. Exousia is where we get the term executive. From which we get also the term execute. Or exercise. That's, that's where these terms came from. So power exercised, power exercised is when that which is at rest becomes kinetic, becomes actionable. God, before he created the heavens and the earth, existed for all the ages. In fact, undefined by ages. The ages, in fact, were given release so that the plan that was originally in God might be fulfilled over the ages. So, every time in, in an age, in an age, a seed is deposited. Through the ages, that seed 
being an eternal thing, undefined by the ages, untouched by the ages, uninfluenced by the ages, will inevitably matriculate to become the thing in reality that originally was in the mind of God. The progression then of the eternal thing is analogous to the progression of a seed planted that grows to a sapling, that grows to a fully flowering tree, that produces the fruit, and then we know what was in the mind of God. So the ages accommodate eternal things without influencing them. So the the meanings of the word eon, everlasting, eternal, all-powerful, is a synonym of that, is when an eternal thing is deposited in an eon, in an age, that thing will be, will dominate the relevant understood by that eternal thing in that age. When the age concludes, the eternal thing will have matriculated to a different posture and it'll be moved into the next age in its present, in its matured posture, the posture that ends up in the, coming out of that age into. I'll give you an illustration in a moment. And then, when that age, and that age is defined by that, when that thing has reached now another level of, of, of progression, it's put into yet another age. And the ages disappear, but the progression of the thing continues until what was in the mind of God becomes the reality that dominates eventually the age. Okay? That's the meaning of eternal. That's the meaning of everlasting. So in an age, a man was always to be on David's throne. That's why history focuses on the seed of David. And all other history is extraneous. Because the emphasis of that age is on the eternal thing. The throne of David. So Jesus is introduced at the end of the period that was dominated by David's authority. Jesus is introduced in the following fashion. This is the generation, these are the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it references doubly the age before David when the promise was given to Abraham and now it connects to the central theme of the age that involved David as the king to tell us now this one is the fulfillment of that and that. The eternal thing moves from Abraham to David, moves from David to Christ. And then the next age is the body of Christ. That, you see, is the eternal thing in our age. 
and it is going to be unaffected by the age because it is maintained by the Zoe of God. It is the possessor of eternal life and heaven and earth may pass away. But that which God is doing will continue until the next stage. And in the next stage, he'll hand up the house to the Father. Because it's his dwelling place. Everyone has a house. And God does too. Except that his house is not a building His house is a family. It's his generations. His generations. The generations of the sons of God. Among whom he'll be all in all. And so the cycle will complete. Let us make man in our own image after our own In every age, what distinguishes that truth from all else that's around it, and that thing is given sovereign immunity in every age that it exists, is the fact that it is the thing that God is nurturing in that age. So Abraham got away with all kinds of stuff that the rest of the folks did not get away with. And so did David. Because the object of God's supervening grace is directed toward the production of the thing out of the seed. The focus of God's grace in every eon is the continuation to perfection Of the thing that has been planted. Behold we are seeing mysteries. All of a sudden we have the framework of understanding. Why could David enter and and eat the showbread and not be killed? And Uzzah was just trying to steady the Ark of the Covenant. A good work. And God killed him. Now you understand. He was not part of an eternal thing. David was. That's why when Jesus came, he was not subject to the law. He said, you were told before, thus and so, but I am telling you, this is what the law meant. It was anathema to the Jews that a man would say, I am he of whom the scriptures speak. That's the envy for which they killed him. But God raised him from the dead because his life is drawn from the realm of the eternal. He who lives in me and believes in me participates in the resurrection of the dead. Though he were dead, yet shall he be alive because I am the life of resurrection. I am Zoe. (laughs) So exousia is the exercise of power and the object of the exercise of power is the preservation of the divine seed. What God is doing will prevail. I'm not worried at all 
that the missteps and the mishandling of the things of God have brought the church into, into disrepute. Didn't bring God into disrepute. We see how the soul of man reasons with the things of God. And, and uh, co-ops the things of God. Capture, attempting to capture the things of God to make them serve Him. Such a thing is a fool. Such, such a behavior is foolish. Because it displays a shocking ignorance of God. God is not mocked. There is no living thing in heaven or in earth that can succeed in mocking God. He's not a creature, you know. He's the living God. He is life. In him is life. And that life is the light of men. So can he guarantee you by his power that he will support the five administrations of his grace. Of course. Of course. That's why you may rest in his domain. For the kingdom of God, you see, is not a matter of talk, but of demonstrations of power. That your faith might not rest in empty words, but in the everlasting, ever-living, almighty God who happens to be your father and the foundation of your faith. Therefore, the kingdom of God is a way of life defined by righteousness, peace, and joy. You got it. In the exousia of God's dunamis. The Holy Spirit is the exousia of God's dunamis. He is the executive power. Now, because the Holy Spirit is in you, because the Holy Spirit is in you, His presence in you confers a status upon you that allows you to act consistent with what He tells you. For Jesus said, he'll take of what belongs to me and he will distribute it to you. So here I want to use a governmental term. When, when you are the exousia, when you are the exousia, the executive authority of another, the other, in this case the Lord Jesus Christ who claims all authority in heaven and on earth, the other is what is called plenary. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Plenary. It means he circumscribes, he establishes the circumference of power. His claim to power is absolute. And it's the power to give life. Power to give life. That's why he overcame death. To show us 
that death is not a deal breaker. That's why you went through death and resurrection to demonstrate to us the nature of eternal life. Because the boundaries of natural life are firmly established by birth and death. But resurrection, you see, anastasis, out of stasis, resurrection is the restoration of a life that cannot again ever be subject to death. So he cancels the authority of death over us, not by keeping us from dying, but by taking us through it to triumph over it so that it will never threaten us again. In the same way, that God had Israel watch the Egyptians be covered over in the Red Sea with these words, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again, because I will not have them disturb your rest in the land of your inheritance. You can be free of the slavery. That's why he was upset with them, that after 40 years by apathy because they had seen the destruction of that which potentially could enslave them and they had no excuse. God looked after everything. God looked after everything. When he raises you up out of death, he has certainly put death itself under your feet. Now that, I think, is a pretty dramatic exercise of power. Now, he has that power and that power is at work within you. But it's not your power, it's his power. His power is the plenary. It's complete. It's authoritative. It is unchallenged. It's unrivaled. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord. Your power is as a pendant that hangs upon a necklace. It's You have pendant jurisdiction, which is to say that on the basis of his power from which you hang, you may operate in his name and by his authority, provided, provided, you have been brought to sufficient age in him that you can effectively exercise that authority. You don't give a child the power to, of life and death. But you do give a mature son the authority to distribute life. Now, the word that, that, that that defines you in that capacity of a delegate is the word plenary potentiary. Plenary potentiary. From the word potentiary, we have the word potential. So plenary potentiary, and this is a governmental term. It's a term commonly associated with ambassadorship, but it is primarily about an investment of power 
from a kingdom to operate on behalf of the kingdom. Plenary, plenary, plenty, potentiary. The potential of seeing the plenary. You are the plenty potentiary who is the executive or exousia, he's the executive authority of his dunamis, of his power. Well, these are a lot of governmental words, big terms, but we're not children. The manifestation of his power comes when the executive is lawfully constituted. In short, by giftings and by calling, he establishes you in him to act for him. When you act for him, there is the manifestation of his power, and that is a term called kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S. Kratos, which is manifested power. And when all of that is working like it should in you as a mature saint, you are the curios, K-U-R-I-O-S, the curios of the Lord himself. Because that is the word for Lord. Now, I think, yes, so let me conclude this section, by having you read along, not necessarily read along, but uh, view as I'm reading, uh, Psalm 82. This will set, set it in your head in a way that you're not likely to forget. So I'm using this as a summary point on the subject of Authority. So I've explained the different concepts relating to authority. The next session we will talk about the, the concept of grace because authority is manifested as grace. We talked about five manifestations of authority as grace. We'll, we'll cover those in the next session, which is tonight. And then we'll go on from there. But for now, I want you to, to read, to follow along with me as I read Psalm 82. Now this is one of those Psalms that, this is one of those Psalms that I read for years and it bothered me because I didn't know what it meant. Now I do. I want to share the understanding with you as a commentary upon our time and the misuse of divine authority. How God views, how God views executive authority that takes the authority of God and uses it to its own ends. This has been a theme long established in the scriptures. Here it is in Psalm 82. I'll read it through first and then we'll walk through it And then we'll conclude today. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? 
and show partiality to the wicked. Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now, who is it who has given all the nations? From the second psalm, we know who it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask of me, God said to Jesus. I've established my king on Zion, my holy hill. I referenced that second psalm in connection with this. And uh, he said to Jesus, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Quoted again in Hebrews chapter 1. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So we know who he's talking to when he says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. He's talking to Christ. All right? Now, who is talking to Christ? The Father. God the Father is talking. So he is the narrator of the psalm. He's the one who is the primary voice in the psalm. So when it says God stands in the congregation of the mighty, he's saying the almighty God, the Father, is standing in the congregation of the mighty. Now concerning the mighty, he says, and all of you are the children of the Most High. Right? So we know who the congregation of the mighty is. Children of the Most High, who, by the way, uh, under the sentence of dying like men. Now, has God at any time ever called an angel his son? No. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's talking to humans. Talking to humans. So God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the the gods. Now, yeah, uh, Peter went right to it. So, who are the gods? And in case you are, in case you, you're thinking, well, you know, there's a sleigh of hand here, something here that um, we will allow us to get out of this. The word for God that begins the reading is the word Elohim. The word in verse 8 that says, Arise, O God, speaking of Jesus, is Elohim. And the word for, you, He judges among the gods, and I say you are gods, that's the word Elohim. One of the names of God. All right, we're done. 
<laughs> That's like leaving you on the cliff. <laughs> or as you'd say, on the cliff. <laughs> this is not like buyer's cliff. The word Elohim, there are many names for God, of course. El Shaddai is one of them. Elohim is another. Because references to God cannot be, there's not a single reference, single word that captures all of the facets of the nature of God. God is many. God is comprised of many attributes. Many things that God is. One of the things that God is, is referenced by the term Elohim. And it means majesty or magistrates. Magistrates. In fact, it's where we get the word majesty from. Because when you refer to his or her majesty, you're not talking about the house they live in or the cars they drive, or the lands and estates they possess. You're talking about how they represent the justice of the state. They're the embodiments of the invisible concept of the law and order of the state. And the law and order of the state must be impartial. When the former first lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, went to visit the Queen of England, somebody in her entourage should have understood majesty and briefed her on how you engage majesty in public. Not even the Queen's consort is allowed to walk side by side with her in public because she is the picture of the impartiality of the laws and authority of the state. And you may not put a hand upon her majesty because that would imply a certain level of familiarity that is inconsistent with the judicial order of her kingdom. It is why God would not permit the hand of uh, Uzzah to touch the thing that carried the representation of his presence. Majesty, clothed in majesty, means you handle the things of God with absolute reverence to God. I tell you this, my brethren, as these things begin to be known in the earth again, you will see men swept away in the tide of their filthy applications of God's power for their own interest. You will see a sweeping away like the, like the refiner scoops away the dross you'll see sweepings away of pretended usages of God's divine majesty. The fear of the Lord underwrites 
the majestic appearances of those who carry his presence. It's the fear of the Lord that is absent from the church. It's become, it's become political. It's become every man doing what is right in his own eyes. It's become how men operate out of their souls using God as merchandise. But those days are coming to an end. For behold, the king arises in majesty. And those who draw near to him will have to wash their clothes. Those who draw near to him will have to be clothed again in the righteousness of Christ. The bride will make herself ready by clean and bright garments because she's preparing to walk in the majesty, the integrity and the honor, the uncompromised righteousness of God himself. So that's why he says, God comes, the great, the great majestic one comes as he did in the temple, in the book of Jeremiah, or in the book of Isaiah rather, as he enters the temple and the the foundations of the temple were shaken as he entered in and the angels flew before him and cried, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. God comes now amongst the gods, amongst the magistrates. Those who have been impaneled, those who have been commissioned to represent the order of his kingdom, he comes among them. And he does not come to congratulate them. He comes to bring the sternest of warnings for the way they have mishandled his power and his authority by pretended majesties. And he says, how long? How long? How long? Will you judge unjustly? As a class of people, I have found in the United States that pastors are the most reluctant to embrace the word of God because they always have an excuse that protects their interest. They've formed a habitation in the house of God like money changers in the temple. God is visiting again. I thank God for those honest servants of God who humbly go about doing the will of God. And I'm not suggesting everyone is like that. But there's an overabundance of, of reprobates seeming to represent God when all they're doing, talking about faith, they're living on the fortunes of the people. And they wouldn't know faith if it ran over them. How long will you judge unjustly? How long will you judge for the sake of a bribe? How long will you, will you step on those who have no power 
to favor those who can give you money. That's what he's saying. And show partiality to the wicked. Defend the poor and the fatherless. I am astonished to the point of exasperation that the the evangelical church in the United States at the present time is silent. The silence is deafening while the present administration cages children on the borders. The children of aliens and strangers. Here the mandate is clear. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Why do you have power? Why do you have the ears of the president? And you're silent when it comes to the poor and the fatherless. Why? Because it doesn't build your ministry. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Instead, they're seeking bribes from the hands of the wicked. God comments on their condition. And he says, these magistrates, these gods... Understanding the term Elohim, meaning magistrates. They do not understand. They do not know. In other words, they don't know me. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You did not know me. They do not know, nor do they understand. They are Ignorant of my ways. They walk about in darkness. Here's what happens. When the majesties. Have become so corrupt. The next sentence. All the foundations of the earth. Are unstable. Do you agree that this is the times we, these are the times we live in? Every institution of government. And it didn't, it wasn't always like that. The courts are corrupt because they've, they've figured out ways to pack them with people they think will deliver the judgments they want. And they call it God. The educational system has become corrupt because there are no standards. There's no one to go to to understand what the standards are anymore. Business is corrupt because you, you're, you're lauded if you can get away with it. All the foundations of the earth have become unstable because the majesties Have become corrupt. Restore the majesty. To the Elohim. And they will see Zion. Emerge. Out of the darkness. And they'll have a model. That they can say. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Thing about a mountain you see. Is it can't be shaken. Everything that can be shaken. But you have come to Mount Zion. The unshakable. Because it is eternal. It's from the eons. 
It enjoys the immunity of God's sovereign presence. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die in ignominy. You'll die like men. You'll die without glory. You'll die without honor. You'll die without acclaim. Because you've, you've eaten the fruit of your efforts. All of you are the children of the Most High, but you'll, and will fall like one of the princes. Now, who would that be? Right. That one. And then he restores our hope by saying, Arise, O God. O Lord Jesus Christ, arise in your majestic presence and bring back the righteousness of judgments to the earth. For you shall inherit all nations. Now, how is he going to arise to bring back righteousness to the nations? In five administrations of his grace. We'll pick up there next time. God bless you.